This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Thinkers as divergent as Zbigniew Brzezinski in the United States and the Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm in the United Kingdom have referred to the 20th century as the century of megadeath, the bloody 20th century that now stands as such a hallmark of horror in terms of human history, just at the time that many humans believed that the species was coming of moral age. It's hard to come to grasp with the 20th century. That's a very humbling realization when, after all, we're just in the first several years of the 21st century. We need help. And some of that help now comes in the form of a book entitled Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, by historian Timothy Snyder. Timothy Snyder is professor of history at Yale University. He specializes in the history of Central and Eastern Europe. He's the author of the new book, Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin. He received his doctorate from the University of Oxford in 1997, where he was a British Marshall Scholar. His new book has set off a very interesting and important conversation, not only among historians, but among all of us trying to grapple with some of the most basic questions about our humanity. Professor Snyder, welcome to Thinking in Public. Delighted to be here. Your book, Bloodlands, identifies not only a geographical region, but a part of our history from the 20th century that many people simply, I think, uh, do not know. They they don't recognize this until you begin to tell the story. And then there is the dawning sense that we should have known this all along. How did you come across this research interest and uh, and the purpose of this book? I, I came to it out of a kind of accumulating sense of responsibility. As you say, I'm an East European historian, and and I work particularly on the lands between the Baltic and the Black Seas, um, between Germany and Russia. And as I worked on other projects and as I read the work of colleagues, as I did research of various sorts, I, I realized that some of the major events with which, in a general way, we're all familiar really took place in these territories, even though we don't remember it necessarily that way things that you couldn't help but know something about growing up in the United States, such as Stalinist terror or or Hitler's Holocaust, I began to realize that we East Europeanists tend to write about one nation or another, and the people who focus on Germany tend to look at things from the point of view of Berlin, and the people who write about Russia from the point of view of Moscow. But meanwhile, in between Berlin and Moscow, and among all these East European countries, which we tend to keep separate, there was this series of unfolding disasters. And, and the more I concentrated, the more I realized that here we had an event which was really unparalleled in the history of the West, wherein some 14 million civilians, some 14 million non-combatants, men, women, and children, more, more women and children than men, were murdered in a very short period of time from 1933 to 1945. So once I'd made that observation, that, that's when I really began to start. I tried to, I tried to formulate at the beginning of the book just what it is we're talking about, an event in which 14 million people are killed over a very short time, and then I sought out to try to recount that and then explain it and then try to give it, give it its proper significance. Let's talk about the geography for just a moment. In the map in your book, you identify what you, uh, what you designate as the bloodlands. It includes a great deal of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, well into what had been the Russian Empire. Yeah, I mean, you can think about this territory in a number of different ways. One is you can, you can think of it as, as nowhere. 
That is, this East European territory, it isn't a country, it isn't an empire, it's not an economic zone. It's simply the place where so much of the killing took place. It's where almost all of the Nazi killing take, took place, and it's where a disproportionate amount of the Soviet killing took place. The other way you can think about it is, in, is as where the Holocaust happened. Um, all of the Jews, um, or practically all the Jews who were murdered during the Second World War, were murdered in this place and in no other. And I think it's it's interesting and it's it, it's deserving of explanation. And I tried to provide that explanation why it is that in the same place where the Holocaust took place, most of the other German crimes also happened, and a disproportionate amount of the Soviet killing also took place. And then another way to think about the Bloodlands is. These are the places where German power and Soviet power overlapped. And I, I, th I think it's interesting that all of that lines up, that, that, the, that 14 million people were killed here, that the Holocaust happened here, and this is the place where Soviet and German power overlapped. And you can use all of those different definitions, and you come up with essentially the same territory, and that's the territory I call the Bloodlands. In the conventional memory of the 20th century, especially with the Holocaust as that paradigmatic event of horror at the middle of the century, I think most of us are accustomed to hearing a figure like 6 million, and yet you point to the figure of 14 million. Can you add that up for us in terms of the scale of the murder we're talking about here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, way the, the way the book runs through these, these horrible events is to stay focused on the territory and then to watch as Soviet power and then combined Soviet and German power and then finally German power roll over the territory, implicating the people who live there sometimes in horrible crimes and killing people in very large numbers. In terms of those numbers, to answer your question, the first major policy of deliberate killing in these lands during this time um, 1933 to 1945 was the deliberate Soviet starvation policy in Soviet Ukraine of 1932-1933, which killed a little bit more than 3 million people. The next major crime that takes place on these territories is Stalin's Great Terror of 1937 to 1938, which of course touched the entire Soviet Union, but which touched disproportionately the Western Soviet Union, which means Soviet Belarus, Soviet Ukraine, part of what I'm calling the bloodlands. Um, where a couple of hundred thousand additional people were shot individually, each in the back of the neck. The third major crime, which I discuss in the book, I treat as a moment of joint Soviet-German action, because what happens in 1939 is that the Soviets and the Germans sign a peace treaty, um, the Treaty on Borders and Friendship, and they agree upon spheres of influence in, in Eastern Europe, and the Soviets invade Poland from one side and the Germans from another. And in Poland, they pursue policies which in some ways are very different. So for example, the Germans put Jews in ghettos and the Soviets do nothing like that, but in some ways are very similar. And that both, is, both are interested in eliminating the educated strata, the educated classes of, among Polish citizens. And so they kill each of them about 100,000 people. And they're very similar kinds of people. They tend to be educated people. Then you have the beginning of a period where the Germans are the ones who are doing most of the killing. If you look at it chronologically from 1933 to 1938, the, the Soviets are killing in the millions and the, and the Germans under Hitler are killing in the thousands. And then from 39 to 41, you see the Germans catch up, so to speak, to the Soviets. But after 1941, the Germans are doing the vast majority of the killing, and that's because they've invaded the Soviet Union, which they, went, which they mean to destroy, 
um, which they in which they mean to transform into a kind of racial frontier empire for themselves. And th- this involves plans to to eliminate all the Jews as well as to enslave or deport or kill um, by starvation millions and millions and millions of Slavs um, as well. And um, that doesn't un- unroll exactly as the Germans ex- expect it to unfold, but they do kill some three million prisoners of war in horrible facilities, which are, I think, almost totally forgotten, basically enclosures around of barbed wire where people are allowed to starve or freeze to death. And they do kill hundreds of thousands of, of civilians, often in Belarus, also in Poland, in so-called retributions for, for partisan activity. And, of course, they do carry out the Holocaust, um, which involves the murder of more than 5 million Poles, who, sorry, five, more than 5 million Jews who are native to Poland or the Soviet Union, um, as well as hundreds of thousands of other Jews who are brought into the bloodlands where they're either gassed or sometimes shot. If you can explain or attempt an explanation of why this particular territory became the Bloodlands, what was the historical series of events or the, or the cultural developments that made this particular region of, of Europe so deadly? Yeah, the, the, the interesting thing is that it, it wasn't really – it didn't become so deadly until the middle of the 20th century. And when one looks back, ironically, at the previous centuries, what one sees is that a certain level of toleration and a certain level of the weakness of the state really um, allowed for a situation which in the 20th century was particularly dangerous. And that, that situation, I think you could, you could think of in, in terms of, of, of three factors. The first is that in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period, the, the West European states expelled their Jews, and those Jews generally found a home in Eastern Europe where they prospered for the most part um, for centuries and multiplied so that Eastern Europe became the largest, the, the homeland really, of most of, of Europe's Jews. Now, of course, the, this in itself doesn't, isn't a cause of violence, um, but it does mean that when someone whose ambition is to rid Europe of Jews uh, comes to power in Germany, it means that this zone is going to be particularly at risk, as indeed it was. Another factor to, to, to point to is, is the weakness of the state precisely. It, when, there is, when, there are, when there is no state, when there is no political system, um, people are much more at risk. And this is something we tend to overlook because we, we simply take the state for granted. We quarrel about how big it should be and so on, and we fantasize that we could get rid of it altogether all and that that would be a good thing, which is, of course, complete nonsense. If there is no state, people are at terrible risk. And in this zone between Germany and the Soviet Union, there was really only one independent state, and that independent state was Poland. And when that state was destroyed in 1939, along with independent Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, smaller states, you then see the real onrush of, of violence after that. And the third factor, and this is the one which is hardest, I think, for us to remember, we modern people, is food. Food was once, and not so long ago, a natural resource, much the way that oil or natural gas is today. It wasn't that easy to produce, and many countries, including many developed countries, were not self-sufficient in food. Germany is a very important example of that. So what the Germans had in mind, um, what the Nazis had in mind moving into Eastern Europe was controlling a zone, especially in Ukraine, which which was characterized by very fertile soil. They thought if they could control that, then they could become self-sufficient and they could make of themselves an enormous empire. Meanwhile, from the Soviet point of view, 
there is a related kind of thinking about Ukraine, namely that since there's such fertile soil here, we can exploit the peasants um, and we can raise surplus capital from what they grow from the ground and use that to industrialize the Soviet Union. This is very hard for us to think about because for us, food is cheap and plentiful and easy. We live, in, we live in a world which is defined by hybrids and fertilizers and so on, but that wasn't the world of the 1920s and 1930s. So those are all the background factors. But if one wants to explain why it is that so many millions of people were killed in these territories, one has to really begin the account where I begin it after just gesturing towards these background factors, which is the rise of, of the Soviet Union and then the rise of Nazi Germany. You do not flinch in your book from writing about the uh, the techniques and technology of death. I, I think a part of what uh, certainly is seared into the memory by reading your book, your book uh, Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, is the fact that, in a sense, in both the crudest and most sophisticated ways, these regimes perfected mass murder. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to say about that. Unfortunately, one of the things which I try to do in the book is is to emphasize, and you've already alluded to this, that that each death was the loss of an individual life, and and that's one of the reasons why I describe some of the killing, a few individuals' deaths with with such precision, because at a distance of time and space, it's very easy for death to become something sadly ab- abstract, and I think it's better for it to be sadly concrete than to be sadly abstract. I think it's important if we don't actually understand these people as human beings, then their deaths can wash over us without leaving much of an effect. I also wanted to make it clear that the killing was very personal. We have a certain tendency, I think, to to anesthetize ourselves by aestheticizing the killing, by thinking of it as being modern, industrial, involving these facilities, and thinking of it as bureaucratic, impersonal. Whereas, in fact, even in the case of the gas chambers, the killing was very personal. There was human contact right down to, to the very end, right down to the moment where the people were actually in the gas chamber. And as many, as, as many people, as many Jews, roughly speaking, were shot as were gassed, and, and many, many other people were, were shot, which is a very personal way of being killed because the shooting was done from behind with neck shots or it was done from very close range with automatic weapons or it was done from above into pits. So people were seeing each other right down to the last moment. And then the, the, the most, in, in some ways, the most horrible form of killing, which is also very personal and intimate, is starvation. This relates back to our, our, our forgetfulness about food. We don't remember that more people were deliberately starved to death um, in this time and place than killed by any other method. And starving people to death involves watching them die over, over a period not of days or even weeks, but really months. And, and watching, watching people suffer, watching people go mad, watching people carry out horrible acts before they actually die. And that was also personal. So I, I, I needed that on the one hand, so we, we, would, we would take seriously the suffering of these people. I, I also needed it because it is part of history, I think, in and of itself. But there's something else which is important, too, which is that we have to understand what we as human beings are, are, are capable of, that we're not just capable of killing people from a distance, although we might prefer that, but that we are also fully capable of killing innocent people in, the, in all of these horrible ways um, from, from enormous proximity, from great proximity. In his book, Bloodlands, Timothy Snyder forces us to look at the reality. 
He points to the reality of what took place in the Bloodlands and this century of megadeath and these years of mass killing, and yet he also corrects our memory. He does so in a paragraph such as this. He writes, Auschwitz was indeed a major site of the Holocaust. About one in six murdered Jews perished there. But though the death factory at Auschwitz was the last killing facility to function, it was not the height of the technology of death. The most efficient shooting squads killed faster. The starvation sites killed faster. And Treblinka killed faster. Auschwitz was also not the main place where the two largest Jewish communities in Europe, the Polish and the Soviet, were exterminated. Most Soviet and Polish Jews under German occupation had already been murdered by the time Auschwitz became the major death factory. By the time the gas chamber and crematoria complexes at Birkenau came online in spring 1943, more than three-quarters of the Jews who would be killed in the Holocaust were already dead. For that matter, the tremendous majority of all the people who would be deliberately killed by the Soviet and Nazi regimes, well over 90%, had already been killed by the time those gas chambers at Birkenau began their deadly work. Auschwitz is the coda to the death fugue, end quote. In other words, our memory, even what we consider to be our well-rounded and educated memory of the 20th century, is in the main woefully incomplete. It's not only un- incomplete, it's, it's erroneous. And our error is a matter of tremendous moral, not merely historical, significance. In the conclusion to his book, Bloodlands, Timothy Snyder, in two separate paragraphs, makes two statements with two simple sentences that are seared into my memory. The first of them is is this, each of the living bore a name. Paragraph later, each of the dead became a number. Professor Snyder, it seems to me those two sentences in some ways uh, frame and and bookend the, the giant moral question of your book, and that is how do we rightly remember and think about these things, and especially these human beings who died, not just in mass numbers, but individually, one by one? Yeah, I mean, you, you ask me a very, a very difficult question, and I can only characterize the, the two modest attempts I made um, to, to answer that. The first is that I think it's very important to take the numbers seriously in the sense of trying to get them right. Too often what we do is we think in terms of big round numbers, and I'm afraid that what often happens in politics is that people prefer larger numbers to smaller numbers because they find themselves in or they believe that they find themselves in a kind of competition of suffering with some other group. But of course, that's that's a really horrible way of thinking, because in effect what you've done is you've wished that more of your own people were killed in the past. Um, I mean, of course, no one thinks about it explicitly that way. But to to insist on a number which is higher than you know to be the correct number is is, is an odd way to think about the past of your own people or or of people generally. So for that reason, I thought it was very important, and I do think it's very important, and I'm surprised sometimes that the people don't agree with me about this. It's very important to try to get the numbers right. and to, we, we can never get them perfectly right, but we can use the, the many sources that we have to try to do the best we can to be precise rather than being satisfied with, with, these, with general estimates. The, the, the other reason why I think it's very important to be modest about the numbers, to be precise about the numbers, to be careful with the numbers, is that when we, when we imagine that the, the horrors that met our people are, are greater than they actually were, 
then we were in effect releasing these ghosts of people who never lived in, into the into the public sphere, and and then they go places. Um, they frighten people. They frighten ourselves. And the, and the past is bad enough um, if we look at it for what it was, without imagining lots of death that 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 didn't happen. You know, the the number 14 million in this time and place is is large enough. Um, there's there's more horror there than we can really grasp without exaggerating it. The, the other thing that I tried to do in the book, so that was all the first point. The second point is that I tried to undo that process a little bit of, of, of people turning into numbers. There are a whole lot of ways in which Hitler and Stalin, although um, their regimes, each of them fell, were, were victorious. They were victorious intellectually in, in, a, whole, in a whole range of ways. Um, and one of the ways that they were victorious intellectually was that in killing so many people, they made death itself into a kind of ungraspable notion. They made they they, they turned individual deaths into these into these horrors that we try to characterize, but we fail with words like genocide. Um, it, and and therefore, I try to insist at the end of the book that once we have done our best with the numbers, we then have to think not only about the precision of the number, but what the number contains. And we have to remember, therefore, that a big number is important, not just because it's so big, but because any big number compares, c contains smaller numbers. And ultimately, any big number contains a whole series of, of individuals. And so when we think of 14 million, um, we have to think not of 14 million, but of 14 million times one, where that one is a different person each each time. And that's a difficult exercise. Um, but I think if we want to be historically correct and also historically sympathetic or humane, then, then that's what we really have to do. And I found as a matter of writing the book that, that people found it easier when, rather than speaking just of 14 million or of 6 million or of 3 million, I broke down the numbers a little bit further to a place where we could be a bit more precise. So, for example, we, we know that 682,691 people were recorded as shot during the Great Terror of 1937 to 1938 in the Soviet Union. It's a little bit easier to try to think of that one person at the end of that number and then think forward from there. Um, and so in a number of cases at the end of the book, that's what I tried to do. I, I ended with a number one or two or three or six and reminded the reader of some of the people we had encountered along the way in the book. And that was my last and my best attempt to try to make the numbers seem real. How, how successful that can really be, I, I have to leave to the judgment of the reader. Well, in reading your book, I am struck by uh, the, the moral sensitivity and the incredible weight of historical argument that falls upon anyone who would, uh, who would venture to identify and explain and tell the story of the Bloodlands and uh, your, your personal approach to uh, to looking at at so many of the victims and identifying their stories in such haunting ways that that again are are virtually seared into the reader's memory that that is uh, that that is a, a technique of, of of tremendous effect. You also, however, deal with the the bigger picture of of the big questions. And I want to ask you the question that I think virtually anyone who comes to terms with even a part of this bloody 20th century in the bloodlands would, would have to ask. And that is the question, why? Why did both the Soviets and, uh, and the Nazis see this mass killing as being in their own interest? Yeah, I, I'm afraid 
and no doubt, you know, being an East European historian and, and, and working on on these subjects has had a certain effect on me because I, I, whenever I think of that question, I think about it in 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 the reverse way. I, I ask myself, how can we make sure that we don't think about our own interests in that way? It seems to me that it's it's much easier for people to think and behave that way than than we would like to think, and that the the resources, the institutional and the moral resources that we have to throw against ourselves to prevent us from being like that are much greater than we, flattering ourselves, um, would like to think. But I, I will try to answer your question directly. It, it has to do, I think, partly um, with the end of an old world. It has to do with the First World War, uh, the destruction of empires, the destruction of ways of life, um, death brought on a scale which it had never been seen before, violent death in Europe brought on a scale where it had never been seen before. It involves also um, the end of certainty about economics, another thing which with which we have a little bit of familiarity. It involves what people saw at the time as a crisis of capitalism, the First World War, brought to an end um, a moment of world trade, which is a bit like the globalization that we have now. The Great Depression forced countries back onto their own resources. It, it ended free trade, and it led to a lot of bad economic decision-making, which prolonged um, a, a horrible crisis of unemployment. It partly had to do with the sense that we, we the Nazis, or we, we the Bolsheviks, have to catch up in the world, that the world in some way is a race, um, and that the only way that the people about whom we care uh, can succeed is if we push forward. And so Soviet development is, is all about trying to speed up history on the territories of the Soviet Union. And German wars are to a great, de or to great extent about trying to defeat other people before those people are going to be stronger than, than the German race. But then, of course, Underneath that, there are the theories, the very important theories, um, the unavoidable, desperately dangerous theories about how some groups of people are more important than others, and that those people are somehow the focus of, of history itself. In the Nazi case, that is, of course, the German race, um, the notion that the Germans are biologically superior, and that insofar as this hasn't been demonstrated, um, some more violence, some more, some more violent conflict will demonstrate this, and it will give the Germans their chance to racially propagate themselves. In the case of the Bolsheviks, in the case of the Soviets, it is the working class, the working class which is supposed to throw off um, capitalist domination and establish a socialist state. But in fact, what happens is that one political party um, the Bolshevik Party, the Communist Party, takes responsibility for history itself, and in the name of this um, oppressed group, creates um, creates a state which embodies a theory of history, in which the Bolsheviks themselves um, claim the right not only to understand the past but to predict the future. Which means that the master of this kind of logic, Stalin, is able to justify almost anything in the name of safeguarding the future of the revolution and safeguarding the future of the proletariat, all that hangs on the idea that there are particular groups um, which in some way have been abused by history and which have to be liberated from history by some kind of rapid move forward. But then in addition to that, there is the notion which is shared by these two systems and which was not, which was, which was part and parcel of that whole era, which is that war can actually solve problems or that conflict can solve problems. 
that conflict which can which leads you to control terrain is what will bring about economic development and that conflict in some way will prove your superiority to 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 others um People had been, of course, stunned by the scale of the violence of the First World War, but certain people had seen how the First World War had transformed the world, and they thought that another great war could transform the world again. Um, and this is this is chiefly how the Nazis thought about things. But then underneath all of this, and I apologize for the long answer, it's much shorter than the book, I assure you, um, underneath all of this or above it all is the fact that these two systems were functioning on overlapping pieces of territory. Their imagined geography, their imagined zone of domination overlapped, and that's where the bloodlands is. It's where the Germans wanted to rule, and it's where the Soviets wanted to rule as well, which meant that these these are the places which were touched both by German racism, German warfare, and touched by Soviet power and the Soviet idea of class revolution. Um, where the Soviets and Germans both were, were the worst places of all to be. And much as we might like to reduce it down to one system or to the other, and important as it is to make the very real distinctions between the two systems, because they were, in fact, quite different, I think if we look if we look at the matter straight in the face, we can't avoid noticing that it's precisely where the two systems overlapped that, that, that uh, the world was the most dangerous. We as human beings try to rationalize this kind of moral horror. We we want to reason. We 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 demand it. Our our minds and our conscience uh, grasp out for it. And one of the ways that that Americans, I think, have uh, have tried to deal with this is by as, assuming that ideology is the most fundamental issue here. And as tempting as that is, I, I want to read to you a couple of sentences from your own book, in, in which you address that. You basically take that argument. And then take it away from us. You say ideologies also tempt those who reject them. Ideology, when stripped of time or partisanship of its political economic connections, becomes a moralizing form of explanation for mass killing, one that comfortably separates the people who explain from the people who kill. I I think that's an amazing argument and an amazing insight. And yet you see this as a very real danger as you operate as an historian in this terrain. Well, yeah, I think it's a ubiquitous danger. I think it's an, it's an ever-present danger. It, it, of course, ideology did matter very much to these systems, but it, it mattered in its interaction with economics, with politics, and with war. And what we tend to do when we think about ideology in retrospect is that we think about it abstractly. We strip away the history that is, we strip away the politics, the economics, and the war, and we try to think just in terms of the ideas. And when we think just in terms of the ideas, then it's very easy for us to say that we reject those ideas. We reject National Socialism, as of course we do. We reject Leninism or Stalinism, as of course we do. But once we've made that move, we've, we've committed two errors. Um, the first is the error of vanity, the idea that because I reject these particular ideas, I might, I won't be tempted by anything else um, because I'm better than those people. That's the problem. That we tend to think that we're better than those people because we didn't, we don't embrace those particular ideas. And the other error that we commit is the error of anachronism. We don't see that these kinds of ideas become tempting for reasons that are not so different from some of the things which we experience ourselves or which people in the world experience. So we are all subject to. Um, the sense 
of economic scarcity. We are all vulnerable to the emotions um, that 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 are aroused by warfare. We are all tempted by certain kinds of, of political utopianism. Um, we all, or many of us, are tempted by the idea of, of, of political authority. These are the things, though, that we tend to drop out of the explanation. And then the, 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 the historical danger at this moment, or at any moment, is that those things will creep up on us, and that they will find an ideological partner. And that because we think that we are free of ideological temptation, precisely because we think we are free of ideological temptation, we will be vulnerable to that ideology when, when it does arise. So I, I, the important thing, I mean, it's not that history repeats itself. History doesn't repeat itself. But history shows what's plausible. History is about what happened. And, and once we see what has happened, then we can at least perhaps be aware of, of a certain pattern. And in the case that you're asking me about, the pattern is where ideas of who is deserving and who is not encounter situations of real and perceived scarcity and what seems to be the violent means of resolving that scarcity in favor of the people who are thought to be the deserving ones. I'm very grateful for the opportunity of this conversation with Professor Timothy Snyder. But let's remember something. Every time we read a book, we're actually entering into a conversation. A mind meets another mind in the community of yet additional minds. That's why reading is such an important activity and why every reading of a book is the entering into a conversation. One of the most important contributions Timothy Snyder brings to this discussion is that he does not allow the reader an easy moral refuge. He does not allow us the easy refuge of believing that we can look back to these events from a position of moral superiority simply because what we now know so many of these Europeans did, what the Nazis did and what the Soviets did, and we, believing otherwise, would never and could never do these things. That argument that he makes about ideology once stripped away from its political and historical circumstances, no longer sufficing to explain, well, it really reminds us that we are not off the hook. And then when in the conversation we just had, he brings in the reality that scarcity in general, and in particular the scarcity of food, can create a context in which people do what they otherwise would never do and rationalize what they otherwise would never rationalize. Well, That just adds another horrible layer of our own moral concern as we look not only to the past, but to the present and to the future. And then when he argues so convincingly that that many of the inhabitants of this region he designates as the bloodlands were not only the victims, but also the perpetrators or the perpetrator victims or the victim perpetrators, we come to understand that even that category that we really learned as common usage after the Second World War of collaborator, well, it raises a whole new set of questions. In one sense, as Timothy Snyder also makes clear in his book, well, we're all collaborators. What about the Roosevelt administration? What about the United States of America that was in an alliance with Joseph Stalin when there was no way we could not know what was going on? What about the reality of the fact that there has been something of a conspiracy of silence ever since the Second World War? to refuse to deal with the magnitude of what really happened in the bloodlands. What about the fact that 
even when we build something like a Holocaust memorial or when we go to visit a site like Auschwitz, we go to remind ourselves, we say, of what happened. And yet, even as we go to these sites, many of them are actually a means of, of hiding what actually happened. Well, you know, from a Christian perspective, all of this really does come to make sense. Genesis 3 is the crucial category here. It's the crucial change in terms of our understanding. It's the revelation to us that we are indeed in a conspiracy of, of, of sinful suppression of knowledge. That's exactly where we draw a line from Genesis 3 in the fall all the way to Romans 1. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You put Genesis 3 together with Romans 1, and you come to understand that every time we make a moral explanation of ourselves, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Even when we try to look at something as morally compelling as what took place in the bloodlands, we look at the Holocaust, we look at the 20th century, we try to come to to terms with something, whether it be the Holocaust or the era of Jim Crow and racial discrimination in our own country, and we say, well, we can take a position on that because, after all, we're now enlightened, we're on the other side of this, and yet... We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, I honestly do not know how someone operating from a secular understanding without that particular revealed knowledge can deal with this. But I can tell you that in terms of the field of history, I know a few who have dealt with these questions more courageously or clearly, as has Timothy Snyder. I'm thankful for the conversation I had with him about his book, Bloodlands. I'm thankful for the conversation this book has, has now prompted in many other circles. I'm thankful that there are now fewer excuses for us to fail to deal at least more honestly with the reality of what human beings are capable of. When you read the last concluding chapter of his book entitled Humanity, you will come to terms with some of the, some of the most searing analysis of the human condition and, and, of, and of human moral action you're going to find just about anywhere. And you're going to wonder... Where have we seen anything like this before? And then you're going to remember how early this started, when Cain killed his brother Abel. From that point onward, we have been a murderous race. From the Christian gospel perspective, there's only one way out. And that one way is not either by war or what we may even claim is a human attempt to eliminate war because the real murderous intention doesn't begin in an ideology or even in a regime. It begins, and we know this, don't we, in the human heart. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. For more information, go to my website at albertmoeller.com. You can follow me on Twitter by going to twitter.com forward slash albertmoeller. For more information about the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, just go to sbts.edu. For information about Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.